HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Sina Rousseau. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, published by the University of California Press. Our spring season begins with Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.4, now available online via UCP's site, and features conversations on food memory, community and the meanings of sugar and sweets. Fittingly for HRN's celebration of community through food during the month of February, my guest this week is Elora Halim Choudhury, joining us to discuss her recently published article titled, What Does Food Sustain? Family, Class and Culture in South Asian Identity Making. Elora is a professor of women's, gender and sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, where her research interests extend to transnational feminism, gender violence and human rights, and also South Asian cinema. Thank you for joining us, Elora, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, for Listeners who have not had the chance to read your article yet, could you briefly tell them what it's about? And particularly also, given that you start with saying that it, it is an autoethnographic piece, what the role of autoethnography is? Sure. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, so I'm a feminist scholar interested in gender, patriarchy and power relations and um, I'm also an immigrant, a woman of color um, in the U.S., interested in questions of uh, belonging, loss, uh, meanings of community and care in a diasporic setting. And this article is really f- fundamentally about um, identity and our place in the world and how that gets articulated through 
food pathways. Um, and what I mean by that is the production and consumption, distribution of foods and how that shapes who we are um, in the world and our location. And this interest really solidified for me um, during the COVID-19 pandemic when um, in our multi-generational household in Boston, Massachusetts, I live with my elderly mother who is um, 80, um, above 80 at this time, my two children, young boys and my spouse. And um, what I observed was that for my mother who lived through the independence war of Bangladesh in the early 1970s, a very uh, devastating war that um, left the nation and um, everybody living through that time with um, very um, traumatic memories. Um, she, my mother was triggered by living through COVID and questions of um, caregiving and uh, practices of uh, care within the family and um, how in particular women are positioned as caregivers uh, in the family and also um, caregivers of the nation at times of war. Um, these surfaced um, through many conversations we were having and often in the kitchen when I was uh, cooking and um, she would narrate stories of scarcity and um, how there used to be a curfew and uh, not enough food to go around and how the women in the family in particular rationed the food and what kinds of things were available. So it really brought home to me this whole question of um, not only intergenerational trauma and that how that is articulated through food practices, but also how we learn to perform our gender, do our gender, um, and in a transnational diasporic context too, through our memories of these stories. Um, so I would say that is what led to writing uh, the, this story, which also became about uh, questions of inequality and class and um, race and um, social divisions in the world and how those get articulated through food pathways. Absolutely. Isn't it uh, interesting how probably there was so much reflection or people had more time for reflection during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and various lockdowns. And there's been some really interesting work that's come out of that uh, in terms of remembering and and what that means and I was going to ask maybe uh, this is something that we can come back to later about what the particular lens of you say uh, a feminist lens adds to it because in the kind of broad area of food studies a relatively nascent uh, interdisciplinary academic field if you like some of the things that you talk about which are, you know, descriptions of hierarchies and social structures and so on, whether coming at it from a lens of history or 
anthropology or um, even media might uncover some of the same sorts of hierarchies that um, that do result in those very gendered positions. Um, but if we can get into some of the kind of details of the article, which there are so many fascinating ones. I mean, you ha you have this vivid uh, and a number of engaging descriptions of what you call a festive and joyful childhood, including your extended family visit visiting for sometimes extended periods of time in a home that you also describe as stately, um, where there were cars with drivers and there was domestic staff, privileges that were afforded or earned through your father's academic status as eventually a university vice chancellor, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, still, that abundance of family and the hospitality expectations that came with it added substantially, you write, to my mother's domestic labor. And you also explain that the status of living uh, in that largely British colonial style, you were in Bangladesh at this, uh, in the earlier part of your uh, piece, Yes. That the status didn't equal affluence, right? So your family meals, while they were sufficient, were measured rather than abundant. Um, for example, there was sometimes not enough meat to go around at breakfast, a meal where your father would routinely attend wearing a suit and tie to be seated next to his mother, your grandmother, where they would both be served meat from the uh, night before, where the rest of you would have roti shobji. Am I saying that right? Yes, shobji. Okay. And uh, omelettes prepared with onions, coriander, and green chilies. So there's this intriguing tension between a kind of privilege and also a relative deprivation due to maybe class and or uh, gender, but still a strong sense of community building throughout that um even with the staff who are uh, mentioned as either maids or servants, but people who were in your family, essentially. Yes. And I'm sorry, this is a long-winded question, but a key thing I wanted to ask was whether your mother ever, when you talk about all of that hospitality leading to additional domestic labor for her, whether it was ever self-inflicted in any way, in other words, did she ever reject any available help via the domestic staff and so on who could have maybe helped because there was an expectation or a desire to be in charge in a matriarchal way of the household? Hmm. You know, I'll uh, begin with the first part of your question, which asked about um, a feminist methodology to studying um, social inequalities and what does the study of food pathways uh, reveal about that. And I think, you know, I go back to the feminist um, lesson of uh, or saying that the personal is political and by really focusing on women's narratives um, that we can uh, reveal how the micro levels of power also reflect the broader social structural um, powers. So I think the family structure that I describe um, also reflects um, uh, a state 
discourse around power, also a colonial relation of power. All of that is revealed through um, some of the examples I um, provide um, in this article. So at, at one level, I can think about my childhood, which was um, a very privileged childhood in, in many ways. We um, grew up in a middle-class um, family, both my parents and their parents um, held degrees um, in higher education. Um, they had positions like um, physician, um, my father as an academic. Um, they worked for government sector jobs, which afforded them these um, large stately mansions and cars, uh, that were driven by drivers, domestic staff. Um, at the same time, the salary itself was not high. Um, so there, it was a, a, a life of status and prestige for sure, but there was also a lot of um, negotiating around uh, the cost of living and, uh, and how to maintain that kind of um, life. So it was not um, that we had um, abundant supply of food. And I always think about it in, in also in, in terms of a, a, a value system too, that the, the food portions were always very measured. And in a sense, um, it also reflected the, the time period that I'm talking about in the 70s and um, 80s, um, where most people in um, urban Dhaka, Bangladesh, where I grew up, um, were not going out to restaurants to eat. The, the culture was much more that you entertained at home, um, dinner parties or family gatherings, um, and, 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 and they all circulated around food. But again, the distribution of it, uh, if you think about it in terms of the, the family uh, table, it in a way also reflected your uh, social location um, in the world and sort of, you know, the, the, the cultural context in which we were living. So on the one hand, it is a, a time period of my life that was very joyful and living with extended family. Um, at, at the same time, those joyful memories uh, mask uh, certain kinds of hierarchies. So who was doing the work behind um, the dining table, the, the shopping for the food, the cooking for the food? Um, it was enabled by the domestic staff that was afforded by um, these high-level uh, jobs that my um, um, father held. And um, again, I think feminist methodology here helps us unmask that uh, hidden role of um, the service people who enable uh, the kind of lifestyle um, that I can think about now through this lens of um, nostalgia and um, you know in a loss. But again, it was a, the, the labor of um, the people who actually made that available to us often get obscured. And I, I talk about this example of how um, in 
the semi-feudal um, class structure of South Asia that we tend to talk about domestic uh, staff as part of our family because many of um, them have been with us for generations. Um, however, there is still that division of how we are not seated at the same table when uh, we eat or we are not eating the same foods either. Uh, so the food prepared for the domestic staff um, is separate and different. Um, and often, you know, they're, they're bulked up through filler items. Um, and, uh, it, you know, while for the middle class family too, meat was not uh, in abundance, uh, we tended to eat it more as a side dish than the main dish, which is what um, is often the case in this country, in the U.S., right? The, the protein is often the main dish. Um, and the, you know, the, the carbs and uh, vegetables, these are the side dishes. It was um, quite different. Um, so um, in, in, in the context that I grew up. So I think, you know, those kinds of um, hierarchies are very much um, at, at play um, when I think about the family dining table and, um, you know, even in terms of uh, a, a gendered and um, age um, hierarchy, how the head of the dining table was always occupied by my father and my grandmother as the head matriarch in a way. Um, and the, the children, you know, we were seated more along the sides and my mother would sit to the left of my father and, and serve everybody. Um, and in a way, it is the gendered role that she played um, as um, the, the woman of the household. Um, but also it was a way to um, portion the food because um, there wasn't enough for everyone to have seconds, right? There was only one serving of the meat um, or the fish. And uh, she would also give certain uh, portions, uh, choice portions to um, my father or um, my brother, who um, I, you know, grew up uh, with four siblings and uh, three sisters and uh, one brother. So there was um, I, I would tell my mother this, that um, favoritism towards the son. Uh, maybe some of that was true that, you know, but there is also that I was the youngest child and I would also get uh, some of the choice portion sometimes. Uh, my sister, who was the middle child, reminds me of that. So in a way that uh, where you are seated at the family um, a table also reflects your social position um, um, in, in, in the family and also in the world in general. Absolutely. That's uh, so intriguing. And I'd love to um, maybe after the break get back to the question of memory, because you also mentioned that you and your sister have got slightly different memories of who got the choice bits at the table. Um, but if I may just jump ahead, and this is because there is so much to unpack in your article. Um, so, but what you'd mentioned now about your brother reminded me of there is also a theme of while you are describing, remembering, uh, reliving in a way many of these family memories, there's a, a sort of theme of internalized 
shame and betrayal and guilt sometimes. For example, uh, when you and your siblings were made to eat the animals that you had petted that had then been slaughtered, so you felt that the the blood smelled of betrayal, um, to paraphrase you. And then there was also a feeling of guilt of taking food from kitchen staff, for example, where when they would feed you while your parents were having their naps and you would go and sit in the kitchen. And then uh, most related to your story about your brother is if you and your sister and or your sister were caught pilfering the chocolate biscuits that your mother kept specifically for your brother in a tin on top of her cupboard. Uh, and that was just for him, I, I presume, given your description now of the sort of what people can expect based on their place at the table, metaphorically and literally. He was the he was the boy. He got the special treats. And there was in your words, you you would have been shamed for your gluttony, which was doubly inappropriate because we were girls. Even though you yourself, in your words, were a sickly child, and that meant that you had a special privilege of having tang offered to you, right? So tang, uh, for listeners who may not be aware, is a, I think, a heavily sugared kind of processed concentrate or cordial that you make into juice. These were social and gendered hierarchies that you seemed to understand as a child like on the occasion that some of your visiting cousins asked you to make them some tang, something which you described as very gutsy because it was clearly out of place. It was a very expensive thing. And also it was kind of meant for you. Um, it was almost like you were ashamed for them. So I, I was interested in, first of all, uh, you don't, say whether you actually made the tang for them. So whether you joined them in their rebellion against the kind of expectations <laughs> and rules, because I presume they knew about them rather than being oblivious to them. And they knew that they were probably crossing a boundary, like when they also coerced you into having a New Year's Eve party uh, <laughs> that resulted in some uh, co-ed sleeping arrangements, as you put it. Yes, that's a wonderful question. and. Um, I think, you know, I grew up in a family of uh, very strong women. So my grandmother, who I talk about um, in the article, who lived with us, um, she lived to be a hundred and um, she was blind for much of that um, time that I knew her, um, yet she knew exactly what was going on in the household. And uh, she had this sort of, you know, tremendous, strong will and we were both afraid of her for um, her capacity to know everything despite not being able to see um, and at the same time we sometimes had a tremendous um, fun at her expense as children that we would tell her all kinds of stories about things were, that were happening which actually were not happening um, and she would always know that you know we were trying to uh, trick her into believing something. But I say all this that, you know, um, because I grew up with her, my mother, who herself, um, again, um, a, a very strong presence in the household, um, my aunt, my mother's younger sister, uh, who in a way was my mother's right hand in running the household, 
my eldest sister, who is um, 10 years my senior, um, also um, uh, she, I describe in the article how she was my father's um, right hand in a way, because as a university administrator, he had to take care of um, various developments happening all um, around the clock. And sometimes when he had social events um, in the evening, she's the one who would field calls, even though she was uh, just a teenager at that time, and inform him if something important was developing on the campus and he needed to take care of it right away. So um, in, in that kind of an environment, although, you know, since I only have one brother, he certainly had uh, male privilege um, in, in the family. Uh, but I think, you know, in a way, my mother's affection towards him and providing him with these uh, chocolate biscuits, and they were imported chocolate biscuits, which was um, really critical in the story, along with the tang, because, you know, they, these were not uh, easily available at that time. They were expensive. They were really um, markers of some kind of a, a coveted um, food item that was only available in very small portions. And so um, my mother saving the chocolate biscuit for my brother was, um, in a way, yes, he was kind of the apple of her eye, but also um, he was not as strong as all the women in the family. Uh, and, you know, in a way, way you tend to shower affection on a child who may need more attention because he's not getting that kind of an attention uh, or is not a strong uh, presence in um, other ways like my sister was or, you know, other members of the family was. So I see it, you know, uh, in, in both, both ways that the food itself was very special and rare in the household and it was uh, saved for him um, because he um, wasn't like a typical um, male child who was, you know, spoiled or, you know, we might think of, you know, someone who getting all that um, attention as a result of being a male child or the only male child in the family. Um, and also, you know, this at, at the same time, yes, because I um, had certain health conditions as a child, I was, you know, often con considered a sickly child. I also was showered with um, attention. Um, and I had all these needs around what kinds of things I could eat or not eat. And uh, the doctors asked uh, my parents to always give me lots of different kinds of fluids uh, for my condition. So Tang, again, a, a, an imported product um, that was not easily available. It was expensive, what was um, reserved for me in the family. And, um, and I think my cousin's were um, a little bit afraid of my mother too. And they would not demand that, uh, well, you know, make me a glass of Tang too. Uh, but they decided to have it when she was not in the house. Um, and that is what I thought was, um, again, gutsy because they were guests and as guests, you don't make demands. Um, and also they, they were ch children too. So, you know, their location in the family um, was such that they couldn't really dictate the terms of what kind of food they would get or not get. And they you know, chose that th those times when my mother would be out of the house um, to ask for, for the tang. And, um, and 
we had, of course, um, uh, domestic staff who would make the tang for them. You know, their place in the household was such that they could not say no to the guests, um, even if they were children and did not have um, a higher social location in the family, they still could not say no to them. But they would also always report it to my mother when she came home uh, that, you know, tang was made for people that it was not intended for. And so, you know, it, it reflects both the our social, socioeconomic um, identity and uh, that that location of having status, um, but not necessarily the economic means to have um, abundant food, um, and also children's location um, within the family. Absolutely. That's uh, really interesting, especially as um, although you had mentioned domestic staff throughout your article, when it came to the Tang story and your cousins asking for them, it was only in as insofar as you describe it, that they had asked you to make it, uh, but not that they might go behind your back and ask <laughs> the servants. Maybe it sounds like your cousins were maybe quite manipulative. Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, so they got their tang. And, um, and you also don't de describe really their genders, but we can maybe touch on that after the break. We're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in just a moment. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another farm bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sina Rousseau talking with Elora Halim Choudhury about her article titled What Does Food Sustain? Family, Class and Culture in South Asian Identity Making, now available in Gastronomica issue 23.4. So before the break, we were talking uh, briefly about how your cousins had manipulated you and all the domestic servants into making them Tang, um, on the topic of that led us to that, uh, which was about a sort of um, sometimes a shame or a guilt that ran through some of the practices that you describe in your piece about privilege, perhaps of having more than other people and so on. There's a very poignant moment towards the end of your article where you talk about uh, someone who you describe as a That's right. maid or family yes. servant, Hawa, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, who had been with your family since the age of seven. And she, at a later stage, I, I gather you were both adults by that time, accompanied you to visit family friends. And there was a what feels like a very awkward situation reading it, certainly where she was uh, not offered the same food 
cutlets, I believe, as everyone else who was in the lounge. And as you write, and I quote, out of Bodrota, am I saying that right? Which you translate as middle-class respectability norms. I could not bring myself to intervene. But you did feel ill afterwards, as the hierarchies acceptable to you as a child were uh, clearly no longer in in your words again, palatable to my body. Now, it's clearly a very difficult moment for you to confront, partially as that rebellion might, in your words again, draw attention to my outsider status as a Westerner imposing foreign standards in a local culture. And I'm wondering why you think that was the particular moment that you seemed to take exception to the practices that you were so familiar with and accepting of growing up rather than boldly being the sort of naughty child that uh, facilitated the tang for your cousins and didn't care about right. overstepping and, boundaries. You know, I think um, I have lived in the U.S. for the last 30-some years, and as a feminist scholar, I I study power relations and social class and hierarchies and gender division of labor. And, um, and there's a novelist, uh, Triti Umrigar, who writes about this relationship between uh, middle-class families and the domestic staff and this um, sort of separation of space, uh, figuratively and literally, um, that happens between um, the domestic staff and uh, a family members, and these are organized around um, caste and class um, system and notions of um, purity and pollution, they govern uh, the ways in which space is organized within um, the family and and the household. And I think that as much as um, we, um, that is middle-class folks in South Asia like to say that, oh, servants in the family who have worked for the family for generations are part of the family, the social relations are still governed by the spatial um, organization. And Hawa, who has been with our uh, family since the age of seven, um, still has to, despite being thought upon as someone who is part of the family, um, sits in a different uh, space when she's taking her meals than uh, sit with the family at the dinner table. And um, when I what I describe in the article that in a visit to a family friend's home who also ha- have known Hawa for decades because of our close uh, family relationship, um, well, they crossed the boundary to a certain extent. So they did not ask Hawa to go sit with the domestic staff in their house um, in the kitchen, um, but Hawa sat with um, the family um, and me in the living room, um, however, not on the sofa, but she sat on an ottoman on the side of the uh, room. And when food was served, um, it was, you know, a number of items, but the choice item was the prawn cutlets. Um, And that uh, choice item uh, was not offered um, to Hawa. And 
this kind of feudal relationship that governs um, social life in, in South Asia is very much normalized and one that I grew up and uh, was not necessarily disruptive of um, as, as a child. And um, as an adult, having had that distance for um, so many years, I think that I, I see the, the awkwardness, the, the, the unequal relationships, getting produced and reproduced and with myself very much being part of that reproduction, um, I, I see it more acutely. It, uh, it, it does create a great deal of discomfort, uh, a sense of injustice. Um, however, my, my own social location and to the extent that it has been ingrained um, in, in my identity still prevented me from speaking up at that moment and, and disrupting that, that order, right? It was disrupted to a certain extent that, yes, um, how I was sitting with us in the living room and not in the kitchen, um, but in terms of the food items, um, she still wasn't offered um, the items equally, right? That everybody else in the room was partaking of this um, very fine delicacy and, and she was not. And my um, social location um, still prevented me from uh, taking that risk. And because there is that risk of being told that, well, you don't live in Bangladesh, you have these sort of you know foreign and Western ideas of um, equality, and those are not appreciated as much um, as in, in in this kind of context. And uh, it would strain my relationship. And I was a guest in there uh, in that household. Um, I did not disrupt that um, that relation as. Uh, and I experienced that as a as a moment of um, guilt and shame, um, certainly. It must have been uh, very difficult, as I said, certainly a, a difficult moment to read about. Um, but what you're describing is also, I suppose, a, a loss of a privilege that you might have had before, where maybe you transitioned to from uh, feeling more at home in Bangladesh and then later having moved to the States and assuming an identity a little bit as a, uh, quote, Westerner, as, as you put it. Um, and that is, I suppose, really the interesting question about uh, writing, the process of writing, which I'd like to get to uh, before we run out of time and how important it is for you to sort of relive and rethink uh, and what also you can imagine that this reading your article and something like an auto ethnography can bring what the experience can bring to readers also for their own experiences but before we get there if we can touch quickly on the uh, issue of memory and you and your sister differing on on who got the choice uh, drumsticks, I believe they were the the choice bits of the chicken because that one could, I think you said that that one could chew on their bones and suck their juices 
So you remember them going to your father and your grandmother and your sister remember the, remembers them going to you. And so as you were talking about how some of the practices, how you try to at least bring some of the practices of your childhood into your own life, and you are certainly reflecting on a lot of them, I'm wondering how you negotiate the role of memory in this pursuit of an autoethnography as a kind of a social sciences um Sure. Um, yes, I think that uh, feminist food scholars have also uh, talked about how food is centrally implicated in identity. Um, it is centrally implicated in who we become. And in terms of um, performing a certain kind of gendered identity within the family, that um, there is a certain kind of passing on of tradition between first generation and the second generation. And I go back to um, the kitchen space often where uh, in, in my family, I do most of the food shopping and cooking. And these are lessons that I have learned from my own mother and the way that she has run her household and my um, memory of growing up in the in the family that I describe um, in, in this um, article and how that still shapes the practices um, that I perform in my family in a diasporic context in the United States. So um, for instance, for uh, Eid, the Muslim religious um, holiday uh, and festival that uh, comes after the month of uh, Ramadan, um, I grew up in a family where that my mother always hosted an open house um, on Eid days, and all of my uh, father's uh, colleagues in the university and our relatives uh, would come by throughout the day and there was always a feast that had been prepared. Um, and uh, this is something that I try to replicate in um, my small um, family in um, Boston and invite my friends and my neighbors. And uh, it's very much uh, generated by um, food memories and it, it shapes who I am in, um, in, 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 in this context um, as, a, as a Muslim, as an immigrant um, woman um, in, 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 in the U U.S. So I think, you know, but these, there, there is always um, a, a, a failure in, in a sense, right? Because it can never match up to um, the grandeur of the memory that I have of uh, those uh, celebrations um, in, in, in the family. And um, uh, partly because, you know, again, uh, there is a, a certain glorification of those um, memories that um, was enabled again by uh, domestic labor, um, of the, the hidden labor of staff that um, I've spoken about earlier in the segment. And uh, here in the domestic context, of course, um, I have to do bulk of the labor myself. So 
um, as that also you know shows kind of the the gendered social reproduction of labor in a, in a sense, but um, also it shows that you know who are the people who are caring for you and and where they, the hierarchies that sort of govern that that space as well. And um, I think that you know food um, memories when we delve into them as um, as, as illuminating off um, personal, uh, social location, but also how these are political, that they're determined by um, who has the, the, the power to um, have these sort of, you know, lavish um, open houses and gatherings. And again, um, who enables that um, for you is, is very much part of the story. And um, again, you know, I will also um, say that the the practices change, right? Because um, in terms of this is how I see myself performing my ethnic identity too, um, as a as a minority in the United States, and you know turning to sort of um, authentic ways of producing the food, right? So instead of using the easy uh, masala mixes that you can use to prepare. Um, biryani, which is a, a staple or a, a signature food for special occasions um, like Eid, um, you know, I also make it a point to do everything from scratch. And again, th that adds to the labor, but it kind of adds to a certain kind of authentic um, um, identity as a South Asian woman. Also, the, per the image that, well, um, you know, I can host these beautiful parties um, and, um, you know, have, yeah, do all the work myself. Uh, do all whereas, the work yourself. You know, easy fixes like the masala mix would um, probably make it a lot easier. But so, you know, these kinds of um, uh, things are also uh, brought up in, in, in terms of um, the memory of of, of how the festival is celebrated um, in the past and um, how it can be uh, tried to replicate it, to build community, to build a sense of um, a family uh, heritage and certain kinds of traditions. Uh, but again, there is gendered labor um, that is very much par part of the story and who gets to do that, perform that, um, tell a certain story about the food. Absolutely. So, which goes back to an earlier um, question. I, I don't think, uh, and um, this is probably my fault, but you didn't get a chance to answer when I was asking about when or if some of your mother's heightened domestic labor was perhaps self-inflicted in the sense that she had turned or not turned down um, the help available to her, but preferred to do it herself. And that's what I was reminded of when reading about how you were trying to recreate these uh, open house Eid um, celebratory meals. And in your words, you wrote that you were willfully choosing to do the cooking on my own instead of catering out, even though, and your words again, the labor made for pure exhaustion. So there is something very interesting about 
the performance that you talk about uh, and who has the time to do the labor and right. yes. the choice to do Absolutely. it and of course the money to do it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, now, so wrapping up um, this fascinating conversation, there's a lot here about how nostalgia, as you've spoken about, nostalgia for childhood, the move to recreate, to remember, to write about, uh, can become full of contradictions between the romanticism of something and not to mention the fallibility of memory, which we spoke about already, where your sister remembers one thing about the drumsticks and you remember another. Uh, but so there's that romanticism and then there is something that might come out as, in your words, unrecognized discomfort, anger, and even violence, speaking about those social structures and those discomforts, for example, how are sitting in the lounge and not being offered the cutlet that everyone else gets. So that's one of the things that happens as these idols are sort of unmasked uh, as resulting from deeply uncomfortable social structures. But I think you're suggesting that it is a necessary unmasking. So there is something yes. of value to you as a scholar, as a writer, and there will be something of value to readers to uh, go through this journey of uh, even at uncomfortable as it might be at times, to think about those things that shape the way that we think about ourselves and how we perform our place in a family or gender or uh, however we choose to frame it, depending on our discipline or perspective. That's, that's correct. And one of the um, important uh, things that I will mention about writing um, about food pathways is that this also came out of a collaborative uh, work that I'm doing with a number of um, women of color scholars uh, who are also exploring um, food pathways. And we came together to talk and write about this, again, during the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And um, we are a, a, a group that we are situated in different parts of the US in different institutions. We come from um, different countries um, and uh, we are immigrants. Um, and it, it became very apparent during our conversations and uh, co-writing uh, also that many of these gendered uh, practices, the labor, the class hierarchies, um, the experience of uh, being in the diaspora and this the feelings of yearnings and loss and romanticism and what that masks uh, were are very much shared across the group um, and I think that there is a certain value of course to talk about talk about this in a cross-cultural context um, as well in and and what a, a feminist methodology of um, looking at women's narratives um, as important as critical and you know what kinds of um, stories those reveal about power and inequality in a um, in a global context um, is 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 a contribution that I think might get bypassed in other kinds of uh, disciplinary, 
uh, focus on on food or other kinds of um, social relations and studies of social relations. So um, that's that's certainly there. And you know, I'm also thinking of my um, mother who would again tell me many stories about living through the war in 1971 and how those stories were very different from the stories that my father, who's an intellectual and a political activist, he and his um, associates would tell about the war. Their stories were mostly about male leadership and national government, whereas my mother and my aunts, they would tell us stories about what was available during the war, who was feeding the family, uh, the rationing of the food, and again, um, their stories humanized the war for us. So it, it, it seems that women were running the nation. They were serving the nation, right? And um, similarly, during the COVID-19 um, pandemic, we saw the crisis in caregiving uh, in, in the U.S. globally um, and the people most affected um, were uh, people uh, who are socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged in, in society. The healthcare uh, practices were, were failing and, um, you know, food was scarce. Uh, and all of these stories, when we listen to women's stories, they um, illuminate the, the human side of um, the crisis um, in, in a way. And I think uh, that's what uh, we have observed in this sort of collaborative work that I speak of. And again, you know, in the work that I'm continuing to do in um, this relationship of food and memory and identity, uh, that, that that feminist methodology contributes something to learn about um, power and, and hierarchy and social inequalities in a transnational context. It is certainly uh, a very valuable resource, and we are delighted to have published your article in Gastronomica. And so I want to thank you, Elora, for joining us to talk about it. Uh, listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.4, which is now online by the University of California Press's Gastronomica site. For more details, you can also visit gastronomica.org where you can see the full table of contents. Join us next week and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.